Wonderful to be back in church tonight. As preacher was talking about that, the testimony was given. I was thinking about many years ago, our son Randy, and of course our daughter Victoria was still at home at that time underneath our roof, Peggy and I, and uh, Bill Clinton was elected president, and my dad was giving Randy a hard time and uh, told him he had voted for Bill Clinton. Well, he didn't, but he was picking on our son Randy. And uh, so as soon as it was announced that Bill Clinton had won the election, our son Randy, who was only just right out of preteen at that time, he called my dad and he said, Grandpa, did you hear what happened today? He said, no, son, what happened? He said, Bill Clinton's mama called in, wouldn't know if it was too late to have an abortion. So some of you will catch that in a minute, all right? But, um, and I didn't say that, he did, all right? And he's not here tonight, so I'll pick on him a little bit. But it is wonderful to be here tonight, and I am uh, grateful for the choir singing. What a tremendous blessing uh, that was uh, tonight. Oh, what a Savior. And I'm glad we have a wonderful Savior tonight. And uh, then also the uh, scripture quotation to hear uh, how the Lord has put everything together. And tonight, I would like you to take your Bible and go with me to the New Testament, and we'll go to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. A very familiar text. In fact, it may be too familiar uh, for many of you here tonight. Uh, we sometimes uh, take for granted the things that the Lord has done for us and given to us. And uh, one of those things, I believe, is Calvary. Uh, tonight, I just want to make brief mention. Uh, Pastor Das would put a couple of the books that we have with the ministry out on the table. My wife has a cookbook she put together. And um, she collected recipes from pastors, evangelists, and missionaries in the first uh, 10 years of our 31-year tenure as a missionary. And uh, she would ask what their favorite recipes and meals were, and she collected and put together a lovely lady cookbook. And then for many years, as we have worked with our executive staff and field staff, operational staff with our ministry, we do leadership lessons, devotions, and uh, for some years the staff have been pressing me to put many of those lessons in writing. And so in 2015 in November... I had always put it off, but the Holy Spirit of God wouldn't leave me alone this time. And so we put some of those leadership principles in a book. It's entitled A Leadership Devotion. There's many lessons in them. And all of those are back there on the table. We don't get a single penny. All of it's donated to the ministry. Help us to be able to purchase Bibles and uh, materials. All the gospel literature, the millions of pieces of material we print at the Rock of Ages, is distributed free of charge through our missionaries. And we're grateful for all that the Lord has done. And thank you uh, for your prayer and support uh, for us at Rock of Ages. If you have your Bible, let's stand tonight in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. As I said, I want to read a very familiar text tonight. And I'm concerned that in America uh, that we are taking too many things for granted, especially God's people. Uh, we get saved, we go about our business, and we often forget what the Lord's done for us and the price of our salvation. And so tonight, I would like to look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, and uh, we'll begin reading in verse number 13. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people, and behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again unto them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And they said unto him the third time, or and he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. And as he led them away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Go with me to verse number 33. And they were come to the place which is called Calvary, 
There they crucified him. The and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Let's pray. Our fathers, we bow before the throne of grace tonight. We thank you for the choir singing, the testimonies, the quoting of the scriptures, how the special music and all together has collectively stirred our hearts tonight. Our Father, it's caused us to worship. And Lord, we thank you for this church and we thank you for what you've done in these meetings. And I thank you for the good hand of God being upon everything that's been said and done. Lord, I pray that those that said in the sound of our voice, if there's yet one here that needs to be saved, their heart needs to be drawn to Calvary to rededicate themselves. Those that are sitting in the sound of our voice that are carrying heavy crosses, I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit of God tonight would speak to them, show the lost man and the lady and woman, boy or girl, that they need to be saved and help them to be saved this hour. I pray for those that are carrying heavy burdens. May you help them to lay their load upon your shoulders. I would ask our Father for those that have been saved, but their hearts are cold and distant from the things of Christ, and they forgot the price of their salvation. God, I'd pray tonight now that your will be done. Bless tonight, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As we examine the crucifixion of Christ, I want to bring a few things to our attention tonight in the scriptures and in the word of God. As I thought about the message in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23, I thought about the choir singing, Oh, what a Savior, the scripture that was quoted tonight, and it seemed like everything leaned toward our text tonight in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. All of the penmen in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all refer to the crucifixion of Christ. As we read various portions of the crucifixion, uh, any of the Gospels could be taken as a text on uh, the crucifixion or upon Calvary. But tonight I feel led of the Lord to use the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23 specifically and to preach on the crucifixion of Christ or upon Calvary. And the reason for that is Luke uh, reveals several details of the crucifixion that are not found in uh, the other gospels. In fact, when we look at all of the gospels together and we looked at, and we look at various passages of scripture in the Bible, we get a complete portrait of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. For example, some of the things that are covered in the uh, Gospel of Luke that are not covered in some of the other Gospels, the very word Calvary itself, the only place it's mentioned is in our text, and we'll find that in chapter 23 and down in verse number 33. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. There are no less than 32 Old Testament prophecies dealing with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The fact that he'd be born in Bethlehem, and it didn't just say of Bethlehem, but Bethlehem of Judea. There were multiple Bethlehems throughout the scripture, but the Bible is very specific in saying that Christ would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And so the Bible is very specific. God is very specific concerning Bible prophecy and, and the biblical principles that we find in the Scripture. The Bible uh, teaches us, if we were to take the time to go back into Luke's Gospel in chapter 22 on the crucifixion of Christ and leading up into our scene, which we have read tonight concerning the subject matter of Calvary, we'll find that Jesus had gone with his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is the place of the olive press. And it is a place where they would take those olives and they would literally, and I'm not going to go through the various stages tonight of the various from the virgin oil to the various oils that would be used. But when you consider the oil and the place of the press and that olive press, those olives would be literally bruised and crushed and every ounce of, of oil would be squeezed out of those olives. 
And so we find that it's symbolic for Jesus on the cross of Calvary, how that he would die and he had shed his blood. And someone says, preacher, how much blood does it take to save a sinner? How much blood does it take to save a lost and dying world? How much blood does it take of the Son of God to save the entire world and every single soul that has been, ever been uh, on the planet Earth from the day of Adam and Eve until today until the time when God will call humanity and his children off of this planet Earth. May I submit to you tonight that while Jesus shed all of his blood on Calvary, one single drop of the blood of the Lamb of God is enough to wash all the sins of mankind, cleanse every sinner in that crimson flow that fled from Calvary. Thank God for the shed blood. He takes with him Peter, James, and John and the disciples. He enters into the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible declares in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 26 that as he entered into the garden, along about verse number 28, he uh, speaks to them and he says, uh, Tarry ye here while I go and pray. The Bible said that Jesus went away and he, there he bowed in prayer. And the Bible does not specify the amount of time wherein he prayed. But he returned and found the disciples fast asleep. He commanded them to, uh, to pray. And he said, what, could you not watch with me for one hour? And so we find that there he goes again. And, and the Bible said he goes to pray again. And after some time, and I believe since he uh, rebuked them of the fact that they could not pray within an hour at some time in that uh, time frame, he comes back and, and he finds them asleep again. And he simply says to them, instead of praying all night, and we go from Jesus praying all night to coming and finding the disciples asleep and saying, could you not pray with me for one hour? to simply when he came back and found him asleep the second time, he said, watch with me as oft as you will. And he goes again to pray. The Bible said he went about a stone's cast further and there he bowed on his knees and began to pray. And the Bible tells us in uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 22, I would like to take a moment and read this passage of Scripture in verse number 44. The Bible says in verse number 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And Luke, the medical doctor, the disciple of Christ, would record this phenomenon in the human anatomy of our Savior, God's dear Son, God in the flesh, and all of his deity. And the Bible would say that he'd pray until his sweat became as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I know that many sitting under the sound of my voice tonight, especially those that are students in the college and those that have studied the Bible and preachers that are here, we know that according to study that a phenomenal has to transpire in the human anatomy. Those capillary vessels have to burst open and, and the blood uh, seeps into the sweat glands and literally the sweat glands are able to sweat blood. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Prayed, and the Bible said he prayed until his sweat became great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And I've seen this phenomenon firsthand. Some years ago, I was preaching up in the Lansing, Michigan area. And then from there, we were down in Ohio and Mansfield area. And I was with Brother Ken Fielder at the church when he was still pastoring. And he had asked us, he said, Preacher, why don't you go with Sister Linda and I tomorrow, and let's spend some time together. And uh, Peggy and I had not taken off in a substantial amount of time, been well over a year and a half to upwards of two years. And so I told him, I said, we'll do that, preacher. And I cut my phone off that morning so we could enjoy the day. Somehow I felt impressed of the Lord. Uh, and it was long about uh, five o'clock or so that evening. And I told him, I said, preacher, I, I just got an overwhelming burden and sense, an urgency that I need to turn my phone on. And so if you pardon me, let me check my messages. And I remember turning my phone on. All of a sudden, there were several beeps that came through. And I looked down and noticed I'd missed 35 phone calls from my mother. She left a message and said, son, you need to call us. We have a family emergency. I called and long story short, my sister had... I've been over in the Oak Ridge area where she lived and she had went with 
her sister-in-law with uh, her twins, and then my sister had twins, and uh, they were there at the uh, w- the river, and they were swimming, and one of the other little girls, uh, her name was Katie, she was seven years old, she was out in the river on the river bank and swimming, and uh, all of a sudden she began to drown, and the mother couldn't swim, and all she could do is wait out in the water about waist deep and scream and yell for help for a daughter that was drowning. Well, my sister uh, only weighed about 90 pounds soaking wet. She was just a little thing. And she jumped in the river to, to save little Katie who was drowning. She swam out behind her, and Katie, at seven years old, weighed as much as my sister did, and she wasn't able to get her into shore. So she finally swam up behind her and pushed her into shore. And then she'd swim up to her again and push her into shore. And after multiple attempts in doing this, she finally pushed little Katie into the arms of her mother. And about that moment, my sister went underneath and was pulled out in the middle of the river by the current, and her body came up a couple of hundred yards down the river. In the providence of God, there were some paramedics on the other side of the river, and they got in, got her body, brought her out. They called uh, Life Flight. They flew her to the University of Tennessee, and my mother said, I don't know how far you are, son, but we sure need you. They were living in South Florida at the time. And uh, so I told Brother Fielder, I said, Preacher, I'm sorry. And I told him what had happened. I said, I've got to go. That night, a storm had settled in. Tornadoes was in the area. The power was out in the hotel room when we arrived. Uh, Trees were down on the interstate, and we were having to weave our way around to try to make it over into Knoxville to the University of Tennessee. We finally arrived uh, sometime middle of the night, and I walked straight to the nurse's desk, and I said, I'm Terry Ellis. My sister, Teresa Arms, has been in a swimming accident today, and I'm a preacher, and I'm here to pray for her. I'd like to go back and see her. And they said, well, Mr. Ellis, we understand it. We appreciate you being a preacher, but you'll have to pray out here in the waiting room. You can't go back into the area. I said, but ma'am, you don't understand. I'm a preacher. I've got to go back and pray with my sister. And they said, well, sorry, Mr. Ellis. said, you don't understand. I said, we have, I know of at least six specialists that are working on your sister trying to, to stabilize her. I went over and sat down with Peggy and we prayed and I went back again and again. About every 30 minutes, I was going to the nurse's station saying, look, I'm Terry Ellis. My sister, Teresa Arms, is in the uh, room and I need to pray with her. And, and uh, they told me, said, uh, you can't pray right now. They're working on her, trying to stabilize her. And I remember I waited, it seemed like uh, an eternity, probably an hour or so. And I finally, I nudged Peggy, I said, you pray. I'm going back there and praying to my sister. I walked to the nurse's station and she said, Mr. Ellis, let me just be rather candid with you. Your sister's life's in the balance. And if you go back, you'll be in the way of the doctors. Sir, I'm telling you, you pray here. And as soon as they stabilize her, I'll let you go back and pray. I turned from that nurse's station to go back and sit down beside uh, Mrs. Ellis. And as I turned to walk and sit down, it was after the Holy Ghost of God said, Terry, you won't see her again on this earth alive. I sat down and Peggy said, what did they say? I said, they said the same thing they've been saying. I said, but it's okay now. She's already gone. She said, they tell you that? I said, no, God did. It was about 30 minutes later, the head nurse came out and said, I'd like to talk to the Arms and the Ellis family. They called us into a little room and they told us all the... Uh, that had happened and all they had tried to do to stabilize my sister and bring her back. And finally the doctor at a, a loss of words dropped his head and he gave the time and he said, but uh, this time uh, Teresa Arms slipped out into eternity. We did everything we could. And when he gave us the time, it was the exact time I was at the nurse's station asking for the final time when God the Holy Ghost said, you won't see her again alive on this earth. I'll never forget that night. It was one of the dreaded nights of my life. Not because my sister had passed away, though we're never glad when a loved one goes out to be with the Lord. She had been saved at, our, at the Dogwood Valley Baptist camp where I was saved at. As a young lady, she'd given her life. Well, I had the assurance. I'd witnessed her on a, numerous occasions. But going back just a few months prior to that, we were visiting with them in South Florida where my parents lived at the time. And I, we got in the car and my mother and dad's in the front and Peggy and I's in the back and we're backing out. And I said, wait a minute, stop the car. My sister was standing on the carport and she was waving by and tears were streaming down her face. I said, stop the car, I've got to get out. They said, what's wrong? I said, I've got to get out. I went to my sister and I said to her, I said, sis, and I, I hugged her and 
And I said, let's step around to the side for a moment. We stepped around to the back of the house, and I said, I love you, and by this time, my heart is broken, and, and I can't hardly talk to her. My, my tears are streaming down my face, and I said, sis, I love you with all of my heart, and I know you've been saved. You've got a, a testimony of salvation. I had questioned her numerous times. I said, but sis, when are you going to get right with God and get back in church? Amen. She said, brother, I'm moving from South Florida to over in the Oak Ridge area, and it was like uh, two months, and he said, when I get there, I promise you, and I promise God, I'll get in church. I said, I'm going to take your word for it, but you better get right with God. Let me pray with you now. She said, no. said, you can pray with me, but I'm not getting right with God now. And I prayed with her and went and got back in the car, and uh, my heart was burdened for her. And then that night, she passed away, and uh, the reason it was such a dreaded night, my parents were in South Florida, and they were trying to make it up here, and I'd beat them to the hospital. They were still en route, and they were coming through Atlanta. And my mother called, and she said, Son, said, is she okay? And I said, Mom, she's okay. I didn't want to tell her she had already passed away, and them driving. She said, and Son said, I mean, is she okay? I said, Mom, she's okay. She said, son, did she pass away? I said, yes, mom, she passed away. And in that steering wheel, behind, uh, behind the steering wheel in that car, and my dad in the passenger seat, I heard him cry, ah! They pulled off the side of the interstate in Atlanta, Georgia, and all the traffic and had to weep and regain their composure so they could drive the rest of the way up. And I hope and pray to God I never, ever have to do that again. The nurses finally came out and said, would anyone like to go back and see Mrs. Arms before they pick her up? Her husband and no one else Moved, and I said, yes, ma'am, I would. I said, I've been trying to get back to pray with her for some time, and I'd like to at least see her physical body before we have to see her in the funeral home. She said, Mr. Ellis, said, we'll be glad to let you come back, but said, we need about 20 or 30 minutes if we could to clean up her body. I said, yes, ma'am. I said, is there something wrong? She said, well, here's what happened. I said, your sister, under the excitement and the stress of all of the um, strain over her body trying to save that little girl from drowning. Said her capillary vessels and some of her blood ver, uh, vessels broke open and bursted. She's been running an extremely high fever and said, Mr. Ellis, just to be honest with you, she's been sweating blood. We went back and I stood on one side of the bed and Peggy stood on the other side of the bed and and they'd cleaned it up the best they could. But when I looked down, and I'll not go into the details, but you could see where the blood had flowed out of her body. And I thought about this passage of Scripture where Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane prayed until his sweat became as of a great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And you say, preacher, why did he do that? I'll tell you why tonight. He did it for you and you and you and you. He did it for us tonight. I remember... Praying not for her, but for mother and dad standing by the side of that hospital bed, waiting on them to pick up her body. And I thought about that passage of Scripture. I preached from the Scriptures. Greater love had no man than this, and a man laid down his life for his friend. I said, my sister laid down her life for young Katie, seven years old. And I said at her funeral, but I know one who laid down his life for everyone. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible tells us that night in the garden of Gethsemane, after he had prayed till his sweat became as great drops of blood, he returned to the disciples and they were asleep and he awoke them and said, mine hour has come. And about that moment, 
Judas comes into the garden and he betrays Christ with a kiss. You see, the kiss is significant because it carried with it two thoughts. Number one, it was a sign of authority or a master. By the kiss on the cheeks, it was submitting to the authority and it was literally saying to the Roman soldiers and to Rome, this is he that claims to be the Son of God. But secondly, it tells us that Jesus in his human anatomy, his human form, he didn't look any different than the disciples and the others. He had to kiss them on the cheek in order to pinpoint who Jesus was in the flesh. The Bible said that Judas had betrayed him with 30 pieces of silver. And someone says, well, preacher, what's the significance of 30 pieces of silver? So what? No, it is significant. Because in biblical New Testament times, a male slave was sold for 20 pieces of silver and a female slave was sold for 30 pieces of silver. And Judas betrayed the darling son of God for the price of a female slave. Someone says, well, it's a shame that there wasn't any more than just a handful in the Garden of Eden, or excuse me, the Garden of Gethsemane that night. But the Bible tells us there was a lot more than a handful. The Bible says that they entered into the garden and there was a a band of soldiers. And a band was a Roman cohort. A cohort was one-tenth of a Roman legion. And a legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers on average. So if a band of soldiers is a cohort, which is one-tenth of a Roman legion, that means that Rome entered into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Christ with no less than 600 soldiers. Plus the full Sanhedrin of 71, the 12 disciples and the false accusers. It is estimated that it ranged from 800 to upwards of 1,000 people in the garden that night when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. There the Bible says as they entered in that Peter drew out his dagger. You know the scriptures, how that he reached out to cut off uh, the ear of Malchus. And I've read where that the Roman soldiers were the most skilled of all the ages with their swords. They literally had come to the place and had perfected that they could hit a helmet uh, right on the weld and literally cause that helmet to split open, splitting and dividing the human skull. Now, I don't know if Peter attempted to do that night, the skill of the Roman soldiers, but I know one thing. The Bible said that he put his hand up with his dagger and he cut off the ear of Malchus. And one of the last miracles that Jesus performed was to take and put his ear back on and said, you come out with me with staves and and you come out with your swords and your spears. And he said, but I was daily in your temple preaching and teaching. The Bible tells us, as you begin to study the scriptures that there, the full Sanhedrin of 71 brought him in and there were six illegal trials of Christ on that night. The Sanhedrin even violated their own laws. Do you remember when they came into the garden and he simply said this, and they said, whom seek you? And they said that they sought the Son of God or the one who claimed to be the Messiah. And Jesus simply said, I am he And when he said, I am he, the Bible says they fell backward to the ground. You say, preacher, why? He is the great I am. He is the spoken word. Do you remember in the New Testament how they brought the condemned lady that had been caught in adultery? Jesus never said a single word. The Bible said he took his fingers, stooped down on the ground and began to ride in the sand. And one by one, the lady's accusers left him. 
And when Jesus was done, he looked up and he said, Woman, where are thine accusers? And they were all gone. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. But in the text, if you read it, the Bible says in one of the Gospels he wrote, And they that heard him speak. He didn't speak. He didn't use his voice to communicate. So how did they hear him? He took his divine finger and wrote in the sand, and there he wrote. Some said he wrote her accusers. I don't know about that. I believe, and it's only an opinion, I believe he wrote the word of God. For they that heard him speak, whatever it was he wrote, they heard the written word of God. You remember when Jesus was walking back on the Emmaus Road? When they finally realized it was Jesus and they said, did not our hearts burn when he spoke? The power in the written word of God. We find that that night, they had the six illegal trials from Annas to Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin to Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate. And finally, standing before a Pilate, he said, I find no fault in this man. And even his own wife came out and said to him, Have thou nothing to do with this just man, for I've suffered a dream this night. And Pilate, at the persistence of the Pharisees and the religious crowd took a basin and washed his hands, symbolic of sin that he was washing himself of the blood of Christ. And he said, if you want him crucified, see you to it. That night they would take Jesus, they'd beat him, spat upon him. Someone said, preacher, why did he do that? Why did God in the flesh, God in his deity, why did he submit himself? Could not he have called 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels to deliver him? Then why did he submit himself to the brutality of men? Why was he wounded for our transgressions? Why was he battered for our sins and our iniquities? It is because he loves sinful man. He wanted to redeem man. Jesus said, I come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Bible said they took him in. They spat upon him. They blindfolded him. And the Bible said they asked him, said, prophesy to us who it is that smites thee on the cheek. The Bible said he opened not his mouth and was led as a Lamb is down before shears. There they took him and strapped him and beat him with a cat of nine tails. And someone said, well, uh, that means he got 39 stripes across the back, right? No. You see, Rome had a law for conquered nations. Rome would conquer a nation and set a standard of law. And that conquered nation had to abide by that standard. If they violated Roman standard, then they suffered under the same law that they had broken. Rome set a standard for conquered nations. They could not beat anyone more than 40 stripes with the cat of nine tails. Israel, the Jews, set it at 39. They didn't want to even come close to messing up and breaking Roman law of 40 stripes. That's why the Bible says 40 stripes save one. That's 39. You say, then preach of his 39, then that means that's all Jesus had across the back, right? No. May I remind you, it was not the Jews, though the Jews were influential in having Jesus crucified and causing Pilate to make the decision. It was not the Jews who crucified him. It was the Roman soldiers. And the Roman soldiers were not under such laws of authority. 
Rome, if you read the history, they could strike one that was condemned to die as many times as their heart desired. The truth of the matter is, we don't know how many times Jesus was tried with a cat of nine tails. But if you go to the Old Testament, the Bible said that his visage, his image, was marred beyond human recognition. These pictures we see of Jesus on the cross of Calvary with his long flowing hair and small trickling blood down his body was not even a close simulation of the crucifixion, the brutality of our Savior who died on the cross for our sin. The Bible says that when the day come for them to crucify him and they'd put upon him, they'd put upon him a purple robe now they had taken that robe. Anyone who has ever had a wound that's been bound by gauze or bandage without any type of ointment put upon it, you know that it matched to the skin and the open wound. Now Jesus with that purple robe upon him in mockery of him being the Son of God and the King of the Jews, they take him and they rip that robe off of him, opening every single wound on the back and the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, some historians believe that gangrene had begun to set in in some areas, even with it being overnight. Whatever the reason, I do know the extent is this. Jesus bore our sins on the cross of Calvary. He was battered and bruised for our iniquity and our sin. The Bible says on that day, they crucified him. They laid upon his shoulders the cross a cross that was not intended for him, a cross that was intended by another one, a murderer, a seditionist, Barabbas. And there Jesus took not his own cross, but a cross made for another man to be crucified because of his transgression. And Jesus bore Barabbas' cross up to Calvary and he made it his own. My friend, that's a picture of the substitutionary death of our Lord and Savior. You say, why did he die on the cross of Calvary? He died. He bore your sin and my sin on the cross of Calvary. He took our place on that cross. The Bible said when they led him away, they put upon his head a crown of thorns. And these are not just your average thorns. These thorns... Even to this day, the type they place, the type they place on the head and the brow of the Son of God, they put it on his brow. And the Bible said they took a reed and smote him, driving those thorns deep into his brow, into his skull. And not only was it that, but those thorns emitted a poison, and that poison shut down the respiratory system, literally causing them to gasp for every single breath. I've been fighting with severe allergies the last couple of days. My friend, that's, that pales in comparison to Christ. Literally, they would gasp for every single breath. They took him on the cross and the Roman soldiers would make sport of the crucifixion. They'd drive the condemned man to the cross, stretch out his arms and his feet, and they'd drive the spikes down into the cross. They'd take their feet and put a little bend in the knees. and Drive those nails and spikes into the feet of the condemned man. They would take them, they would stand them up on a pre-dug hole and they would release it and, and when it would come to a, a screeching halt, a thud. The Bible says one of those Old Testament prophecies, prophecies that ever joint in his body was out of socket. 
Here's the beaten, battered body of the Lord Jesus Christ dying and wounded for your sins and my sins. And now they stand him on the cross and suspended between heaven and earth, release him, and with a fat, heavy joint in his body comes out of socket. Now his body, because of the exposure of the nerve endings, is twitching and contorting, and Jesus on the cross of Calvary is gasping for every breath of air. They would leave that little bend in their knees so that they could push up and breathe, get a lung full of air, and release it. <laughs> Crucifixion is one of the most agonizing, painful means of death ever devised by humanity. Some of the atrocities committed in the, some of the world wars pales in comparison to a crucifixion. When Titus and the Roman soldiers marched into Jerusalem in 70 AD, they crucified so many of the leaders of, 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 of Jerusalem that he says, Josephus the historian said, spaces were wanting for crosses and crosses for spaces. They devised it and designed it so there would be a slow, excruciating, painful death. And Jesus on the cross of Calvary, once they have him suspended, will have seven cries on Calvary. That'll not take the time to get into tonight. You say, preacher, why in the world did he do all of that? My friend, he did it for you and I. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Dare we tonight as a child of God receive the redeeming power of the shed blood of Christ. Have the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And fail to pass out tracts. And fail to tell people about Christ. And let them die and slip off into an eternal hell tonight. Dare we as child of God do such an atrocity. There we come to a service and the Spirit of God deal night after night after night after night after night after night and never move and do what God bid us to do after all he did for us. Yes, I understand tonight salvation is free to you and I, but it costs God everything. We have become complacent Christians when it comes to Calvary. We take it for granted. Go with me tonight, if you would, to one passage of Scripture, and I'll try to draw things to a close. Study the depths and the details of the crucifixion sometime. You'd be appalled at the brutality of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, let me read just a couple of verses of Scripture. Beginning in our text, in verse number 23, let me just skim through this and read some of the key passages. In Hebrews 10 and verse number 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Our theme at Rock of Ages ministry this year is holding fast holding fast to doctrine, holding fast to righteousness. And here we find that we're to hold fast a profession of our faith. So he's speaking of those who have made a profession of faith, those that have been born again, birthed into the family of God. He says, without wavering, for he is faithful that promised, that's speaking of God. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. In verse number 22, or 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, and that is referring to the local church. 
as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. He never takes the context of our scripture off of those who have a profession of faith or who have been birthed into the family of God. You'll never find the text changing in this passage of scripture. Now notice, if you would please, in verse number 27, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Now let me ask you something. Who's the adversaries in our text? He never changes to a sinner. The adversaries in our text are believers who are trampling the blood of Christ under their foot. And it's not talking about them losing their salvation, so don't misunderstand me tonight. Stay with me in our text. Of how much sore punishment in verse number 29, suppose you shall they be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and have done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, and I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, now watch, verse, watch the end of verse number 30, if you would. Again, the Lord shall judge, what's the next two words? His people. May I just say this? If you want to make God mad, I've got a message out of this text. I've, I've never preached it. God's never given me the liberty. But it's how to make God mad. You want to make God mad? Trample the blood of the Son under your foot as a Christian. Do disgrace to the crucifixion and what Christ did on the cross. You say, preacher, how in the world do we do that? When we fail to live for God, when we fail to hold to our profession of faith, when we fail to proclaim the shed blood of Christ, when we fail to be obedient to the Holy Spirit of God, we do despite and we are disgraced to the blood of Christ and his shed blood on Calvary. It's as if we're saying to God, you know something, I thank you that you saved me and I'm going to heaven. But as far as that goes, anything outside of that, I could care less about you, God. Again, the Lord shall judge his people. He's not talking about hellfire and brimstone in this text. But God has a vengeance for those who despise what he did for them on Calvary. Our son Randy, if we get the musicians to go ahead and come to the instruments tonight, ready for an invitation. Our son Randy, several years ago, um, had come to our daughter Victoria's wedding. And our son-in-law, Mike, had asked Dr. Garris, who's in heaven now, the late president of the Rock of Ages, said, Dr. Garris, I have a lot of family members going to be here. They're going to be lost. And so I want to ask you to preach on hell, if you would, please, in the Wedding. I've never heard a message on hell in a wedding until then. But Dr. Garris, he preached, and I mean he preached. Gave the invitation, and nobody moved there, but that was on a Friday, and by Sunday noon, three people in that wedding ceremony had been converted to Christ. One of them was our son. He was supposed to go with us to church on the morning, and he was living with my dad in South Florida and mom. And at that time, my dad was not in church doing right with the Lord. And, but um, I told him, I said, Dad, would you come? So Randy can be at church with us in the morning. He said, I'd be glad to. We'll come, then we'll leave for Florida. And I told Peggy, I said, I know what's going to happen. My dad's going to come to church, or he's going to meet with us. He said, if you'll have breakfast, we'll go to church with you. And I said, he's going to come to breakfast. We're going to fellowship. And he's going to look at his watch and say, boy, it's getting late. We better go on to Florida. Sorry, we'll catch you next time. That's exactly what happened. Am I telling the truth, Mrs. Ellis? We went to church that morning, and I'm telling you, uh, all I can tell you is the windows of heaven open. Then the choir singing, and uh, all of a sudden people started coming. The altars were flooded, and the people were getting saved, and people were getting right with God, and the Holy Spirit of God was moving in great power. And Peggy and I bowed on the altar and wept. And I said, if only Randy had been here. There's no telling what God would have done this morning. You see, God had woke me up in the middle of the morning 
And in my devotion reading the scripture, God had showed me that he was lost and he needed to be saved. Just a few weeks, maybe two or three weeks later, God woke Peggy up in the middle of the night. I found her at the foot of our bed weeping and I said, babe, what's wrong? She said, God woke me up and showed me Randy needs to get saved. He's dying and going to hell. We began to join in prayer. I have it in my Bible, not this one, but my last preaching Bible, I retired a year or so ago. I have it in flyleaf of my Bible. This is a verse. This is a date and time and place. God showed me our son needed to get saved, and I'm claiming this verse. Randy was on the way to Florida when all this took place. I was to preach at another church that night. I was there at 5 o'clock, and no one was there, and we were walking through the church property around, and I looked at Peggy. I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if the Holy Ghost of God just brought him under such conviction he had to call or stop on the side of the interstate and get saved and give his life to the Lord? I had no more said that, and my phone rang. I looked down, and it was Randy. He was weeping and wailing on the other side. I said, son, are you okay? I, my, immediately, my mind, though I was thinking about how wonderful it would be for him to get saved, my mind went to the fact that he must have been in a wreck. I said, son, are you okay? He said, I'm okay, Dad. He said, no, I'm not okay, Dad. And I could hear my dad saying, Lord, son, stop this car. We're going to get killed. I said, son, what's going on? He said, daddy, he said, I know I'm going to hell and I need to get saved and born again. I said, son, stop the car on the side of the interstate. And he pulled off the interstate uh, 22 miles north of Valdosta, Georgia on the southbound lane of I-75. And I said, son, let me share the scripture. He said, dad, I've heard some of the best preaching on the planet earth. I don't need preaching right now. I just need to pour my heart and soul to God and get saved. And on the cell phone, I listened to him pour his heart out to God. And he got birthed in the family of God. And God changed the young man's life. It changed from that day forward. But he said, Daddy, I've heard all the preaching you can imagine. And I know he had. He'd heard some of the greatest preachers in America and some of the foreign lands that we'd travel to. And he said, Daddy, I know about Calvary. I know about salvation. I just need to receive it and give my life to God. And I say to you tonight, you may be sitting here and you've heard it all your life. until you reach out and take it you don't have it you may be sitting here tonight as they begin to play on the instruments you've been saved and you thank God for Calvary and you've not taken Calvary for granted but if you quit sharing Calvary with your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones and others that are around you why don't we come tonight and pray for our church? Let's come tonight and pray for America. Let's come tonight and pray for the preachers. Let's come tonight before Calvary and thank God for what he did on the cross. If you're here tonight and you need to be saved, why don't you come? Come now, saith the Lord. Let us reason together. Would you come and reason before the throne of God tonight? You're here tonight and you need to be saved. Let it be known by an uplifted hand, saying, Preacher, if I died, I wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know much about Calvary. I've heard about it. I've read about it. I've been taught about it. I've heard preaching about it. But preacher tonight, I've not come to Christ at Calvary. I've not met him. I've not been washed in that crimson flow that flowed from Calvary that day. Preacher, pray for me. If I died, I'm not going to heaven. Would you let it be known by a lifted hand tonight? Anywhere, anywhere, anywhere at all. Preacher, in the altar of the pew. Preacher, pray for me tonight. I need prayer. I'm not saved. I don't know the Lord. If you can't make it to the front, go ahead and bow on the altar or in the aisle. That'll be okay. Tonight, let's just let the instruments play so that we can pray before God. We're in no hurry tonight. Let's do business before the Lord. And let's just thank Him for Calvary.